Thank you for joining me for the Coal Mind Podcast. This is David Cole from Dallas, Texas, and it's April 18th, 2021. This episode presents a special guest, my friend Jason Bloom, one of the finest, most respected jury consultants in the entire country. During the COVID-19 pandemic, he assisted with 10 jury selections that were live, actually at the courthouse, as well as any number of mock jury focus group exercises. Our conversation today examines what lies in store for us as courthouses reopen and jury trials resume across the country and offers some surprisingly positive news about how excited people are to re-engage in civic activity such as jury service, along with some cautionary notes about the information diets that are informing juror worldviews as they hear the arguments and evidence presented to them at trial. My special guest today is my friend Jason Bloom, one of the best jury consultants in the United States. He's based here in Dallas, and I have had the good fortune to work with him on probably a dozen trials and mock jury exercises over the last several years. Because of his nationally recognized expertise, Jason is one of the few jury consultants who remained active throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, and I'm going to talk to him today about what he's seen, lessons he's learned, all with an eye towards the potential legal issues that may come up as jury trials slowly resume here in Dallas and across the country. Thanks for being with me here today, Jason. Thanks for having me, David. The easy question, how's business been these last few months? Business is good. I can't complain at all. Like many people in the legal profession, things got slow last April, May, June, when everyone was uncertain about what the future would hold, but picked up rather quickly, and I've been going and blowing just like normal in the last few months here. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, and it is remarkable. We've seen that in our practice here as well, how resilient the system was. After the initial shock and all the initial orders, things did come back to life and were quite busy the last part of last year. But the question I have from your perspective down at the courthouse and in your exercises, are people really showing up for jury duty? I know there's a lot of anxiety about health and people have been trying to stay home and socially distance. Are they really coming when they get summoned? Yeah, both in the mock jury studies and the trials, I've consulted on, helped pick juries in at least 10 civil trials since the pandemic. And I can't think of a time where there's been an issue with the show rate. Wow. And usually you're going to have one or two, let's just say maybe 10% of the people who actually do show have an issue with sitting as a juror because of COVID. And so far, all the judges I've been exposed to have been very, very good about just letting that individual excuse him or herself from, from jury service and rescheduling at a later time. But it's interesting, people are showing up. The mock jury studies, I'm getting better show rates than I think I ever have in, in the past and better quality participants as well. And I think what's going on is in society, there's a lot of pent up frustration. Okay. Uh, and just a lot of frustration, quite frankly, as we now are paying more attention to the things around us, such as the government, big businesses, uh, other things that maybe we didn't pay as much attention to before we are now paying attention to with a more critical eye. With all the time that we have now to think about these things, we're thinking about how to make them better. And so because of all the frustration and the ability or desire to want to make things better than they are, what can the individual citizen actually do to improve his or her community? Not a whole lot. You can vote every November or every four years in November for a president, or you can sit on a jury. And mm -hmm. I think this is an opportunity for citizens to, let's just say, right wrongs that are happening in their community, uh, in their county, in their state, and in their nation. So I think we're going to see show rates uh, increase. There's always going to be people who just don't have the courage or won't 
have the courage to show up probably for the next four or five or six months. But I think there's going to be ample amounts of people who will in order for the process to flow like it normally would. That's fascinating. And it's consistent with the historic reasons we have jury duties. We don't have jury duty because we believe it leads to better decisions or anything of that nature. It's to provide an opportunity for civic engagement like voting. And people have gotten a little blasé about it going up to the pandemic, try to get off of jury duty and joke around about that. It's very interesting to see that this pandemic may have motivated some sort of return to the roots on that. Which is another interesting thing that I'm seeing too, and that is a lot less people are trying to get excused from jury duty due to hardships. Hmm. Um, you used to see somewhere around 15 to 20% of the jury pool would, would say, you know what, I, I can't do this for, for, for some other reason than just maybe a doctor's appointment on a Thursday afternoon. I'm seeing very, very few people raising their hand when given multiple chances to tell the judge that serving on the jury would be a hardship for a week or for two weeks. So that's certainly refreshing to see as well. That's encouraging. It's a change, and it'll mean we'll have more folks down there. It may also simply reflect that people are just so desperate to do anything now that coming down to the courthouse for a few days sounds better than being at home. But uh, hopefully there's some good civic engagement going on there as well. Let me ask uh, just some practical questions from what you've seen both at the courthouse and in your own mock exercises that you do with your firm. We have to have social distancing and how we process people when they come in, how we conduct questioning. How has the mechanics of social distancing affected what the judges and the jurors and the lawyers are doing during the selection process? Does it make it easier, more awkward, add new dimensions? It's very, very interesting. I think the very first jury selection I was part of was last summer. And I think the masking and the distancing was a little bit awkward for everyone who was involved. But the most recent jury selections that I've been part of, it just seems normal to look out in the gallery area and see people spaced out the way they are and to try to listen with a little bit more effort because people are talking with masks on. But it's certainly doable. It certainly worked. I was part of the trial that was in Sherman last November that was shut down due to COVID. And I think that was just an anomaly. I think there was just a big surge there. I think the judge and the court staff did an excellent job, as they have everywhere, of, of making people feel safe and comfortable. But with something like a virus, chances are if you have 200 people go through a courthouse in a, in a month's time or two months' time, someone's going to have it. It's just playing the odds. But I think it's doable, and it looks different. It feels a little bit different, but I don't think that it gives an advantage to a plaintiff or gives an advantage to a defendant, I think it just requires a bit of an adjustment by everybody involved. Now, obviously, you can't see their facial expressions during jury selection like you could when they were not wearing masks. But I'm also finding, and this is another interesting characteristic or development, that jurors or prospective jurors are more vocal, getting a lot more participation during the jury selection process than I'm used to seeing. And it could be the result of a, a little bit better of a job that the attorneys are doing in, in asking questions, but more of it is more hands are going up and there's a lot more rich and meaningful commentary coming out of the prospective jurors than we used to see. And I think people are just feeling more comfortable now expressing their opinions in a judgment-free, neutral environment. And that could be a product of what we've been doing over the last 10 12, 13 months, and that is expressing how we feel online. There's really no consequences 
to posting something on social media. You can just say your opinion and, and nothing really happens to you. So I think that's encouraging as well because I think as we go forward, we're going to find that it's going to be more important for us to discover these pre-existing beliefs within the minds of our prospective jurors than before. And I think 2020, the year 2020, much more happened in that year than just the pandemic. So people have been asking me about how's COVID affecting juries. I've actually got a presentation that I'll be giving to law firms in, in the future weeks, as well as different bar organizations called More Than COVID, uh, how 2020 has reshaped the jury. And I think there was a lot more that happened in 2020 than just the pandemic that has shifted the way juries view cases, as well as how they go about making decisions. And, uh, you know, you always look for in the jury selection process, these predispositions, pre-existing beliefs, because we know those are predictive of verdict orientation. Well, the average juror would just bring a pocket full of those to any given courtroom during the jury selection process. Now, I think these prospective jurors are bringing suitcases filled with pre-existing beliefs, predispositions, life experiences and attitudes, which could make it nearly impossible for them to side with either the plaintiff or the defendant. And as we move forward, we've got to do a better job of unpacking that suitcase and discovering what's inside that suitcase so we can make better choices of who's going to be a risky or who's going to be an acceptable juror. That's a very interesting observation. And it's certainly, we in our, in our legal system, we recognize that people come with biases. In fact, that's one of the things we want is people to come and bring their experiences and speak their mind and process the evidence that they hear. What we are on the lookout for, of course, is unfair bias, prejudice, the inability to keep an open mind. And that's always a challenge in any situation. It sounds like it could be more so in some. I don't want to steal the thunder of your upcoming presentation or anything, but can you give a couple of examples of some of the issues that have come to people in the last year that are now likely to be found in your average juror's suitcase? Well, you know, what's going on in the country now and society, which is going to go on in the courtroom as well, is just a huge exercise in confirmation bias. And right now we get our news from where we want to get our news. We get our information from where we choose to get our information from, whether that's a major news network or a social media platform. We actually subscribe to it. And we subscribe to that particular media platform or we turn on that particular TV station because we like what it is telling us. And so all we're doing now is looking for things around us that confirm our pre-existing beliefs. And that's why it's important to discover those pre-existing beliefs in jury selection. What I'm seeing also though in the mock jury studies now is there's kind of a new policy of truth out there. Okay. You used to be able, you used to be entitled to your own opinion. Now you're entitled to your own facts. And if you don't believe the truth, there's no consequences, right? So rather than believing the information, we are now in a society where we're believing the source of the information or disbelieving the right. source of the information. And that's really one interesting thing that I've, I've seen. I've also, I've seen jurors and mock jury studies sort of reason backwards. That is, they come to a conclusion and then they just defend it. And this is sort of a cousin-type dynamic mm -hmm. of confirmation bias. I've also seen, at least in the mock jury level, it's, it's hard to really assess the, the jury level because most of these trials are in federal court. And more often than not, in federal courts, you're not allowed to interview the jurors after the trial. In state courts, it's, it's widely allowed. 
in uh, federal courts, it's, it's seldom allowed. So what we really are basing this on is a lot of mock jury study. But one of it is, is less trust in experts. You can get a case and you'd want to get an expert to say every little thing that you can possibly find. But I think as a society, we're trusting less uh, in experts. In other words, the person, the individual's own opinion is more valuable than the Harvard economist's expertise, right? And they clued into the fact that these people are hired guns. We were seeing that before, but it's also just, I don't care. Whatever I think is more important, more valuable to me, you're not gonna change my mind. No matter if you're right or you're wrong, I'm gonna believe myself as opposed to you. It's a fascinating contrast to hear you describe because on the one hand, we have people wanting to, to participate in civic engagement. They want to be on jury duty. They want to come to the courthouse and cast their vote in a way in the, in, by interacting with people in the jury and, and making their decision heard. But at the same time, civic engagement, as we've always thought of it, has been a fact-based exercise. You review the evidence, you decide how you're going to vote here. You're engaging in a different way. You have different uh, sources of information. Confirmation bias is more powerful. And mm -hmm. while there's an eagerness to engage, what people are engaging with may be a little different than it might have been just a few years ago. And you're also seeing, and I love this word, and I've never heard anyone else use this, but it's ultra crepidarianism. That's a fine sounding word. Yeah. Someone being mm. an ultra crepidarian. And what that is, is someone who is speaking about something they're really not too familiar with, but they think they are. And social yeah. media gives rise to that because it tells you a little bit about okay. something. And so now you think you're an expert on it. And you learn a little bit about five different things and now you think you're an expert on those five different things. And you see a lot of that too. So, you know, I'm an expert now in COVID because I've read some articles about it. I'm an expert in civil rights because I've read some articles about it. Uh, I'm an, an expert uh, in, you know, how police officers should perform their job because I've seen some news articles on it. Yes, it's interesting to you to mention a, a... Are you Googling it right now? No, I was actually looking up a word I'd used <laughs> on a podcast a couple of months ago. My own, uh, this one is more common than the one you just used, but uh, pareidolia was ah. the word I had used which is our tendency to make order out of disorder. It's the reason people see a face on Mars. They see data and they process it to create something. It's which we were trained to do when we were hunter-gatherers. We had to process stuff in the jungle and figure out if we were being attacked or not, which in turn is heavily connected to the confirmation bias yes. of the person processing yes. the information. And of course, if I'm predisposed to process information in a certain way, I'm perhaps more vulnerable to someone who's speaking in an ill-informed manner the way you just described. These obscure psychological topics are really not so obscure now as we emerge from That's this pandemic. Right. And, and now uh, your listeners have two new words to use in Scrabble. Outstanding. There are many things you can learn from hanging out with lawyers and jury consultants and improve vocabulary why it's just one of those uh, many things. I've been kind of assuming, and as we've been talking, I've been envisioning you live at the courthouse with lawyers, socially distanced and masked and all that, but actually there engaging. But I know there have been uh, efforts at virtual Vordires, virtual trials, and I assume that in your work and as a consultant, you also do some virtual exercises. I'd be interested in what kind of virtual experiences you've had along yeah. these lines and whether they have differed or been largely the same as yours that have been live and in person. Yeah, um, you know, the virtual mock jury study, virtual focus group works for some cases, but not for all. It's really a lot more like polling 
And so, you know, we can learn what 300 people think. We can learn what 100 people think about your case. But if you think about a jury, a jury is a vote by committee. So there's all these group dynamics that come into play that you can't really capture in the same way through the virtual type of exercise. If you just want to test a few issues, I think it works really, really well. But if you've got a complex case and you need to tell people about your case for hours on end and give them a lot of stimulus to think about and then have group deliberations, I think you want to stick with these in-person mock jury studies, which, which we've been doing routinely now with really no problem at all, certainly complying with CDC guidelines. The thing about the virtual that's kind of discouraging to me as well, I'm a very big believer in confidentiality of this stuff. I like to stay behind the scenes. When you do a virtual mock, you're really broadcasting your case into some random stranger's living room. And I don't know who else is in that living room listening to that. I've got a confidentiality agreement with the mock juror or the research participant, but I don't know what else is going on in the background. I can't control whether they're recording any of that. And, you know, then we get to attention levels. And the thing that makes that, that we compete for one's attention with our electronic devices, in the virtual world, we are putting people in front of those electronic devices which cause all the distractions, and then asking them to pay close attention. And it's really, really hard to do. And anyone who's been on Zoom, which is probably everyone, knows that no one can survive even 15 minutes on Zoom without checking an email, responding to an email, ordering something on Amazon. I can get a tremendous amount of data, individual data through the virtual modality. There's no doubt about that. And it's very, very easy to do. But you know, where I like to participate in the legal community is not just taking, not just getting the data, not just drawing the blood from the patient, but analyzing it and then figuring out, okay, what do we need to do about it? Sure. You know, here's your data on your blood work. What do you need to do about it? How do you need to change your diet? How do you need to change your exercise? What medicine do you need to take? And I can do that a lot better if I'm talking back and forth with these people in the room with them. So bottom line, virtual is less expensive by far in a way, more convenient, but it, you know, the mock jury study is not a one size fits all proposition. Recognizing that, that the power of confirmation bias, which has always been a part of our deliberations, but that it has become stronger and, and more entrenched uh, in our society now, how can you deal with that in the course of presenting your case, selecting themes? I don't want to get too off topic or ask you to reveal the secrets of your work or anything, but it's such a powerful force. It's so unconscious that people think they're not being biased, but they really are. Are there some general principles that advocates can try to keep in mind when yeah. confronting a room full of people that, that are engaging in confirmation bias? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, by the way, bias is not a bad word. Everyone, Agreed. Everyone is biased. Let's just put that out no, there. That's legally the one-on-one principle. Our juror cases all acknowledge that. There's not, It's unfair bias, prejudice we're looking for, but we, we, we know it and we appreciate it in our right. selection. And got to recognize it. So I've recently asked lawyers in their voir dire to just describe the confirmation bias so that people can recognize it within themselves, but also let the prospective jurors know it's not a bad thing. But we've got to discover those people, do a better job of discovering those people who've got those pre-existing beliefs 
who will then employ confirmation bias and could never see the world the same way that you do or your client does. And I think it's just improving the jury selection process to the point where we can get more information that's relevant about these people. I've seen federal courts that have opened up do a very good job at this. I hope that on the state court level when they open up, I know Dallas is opening up in June, which I think is great, that we don't try to rush the process and we don't substitute taking a deeper dive into the pre-existing beliefs of these prospective jurors in order to create the perception of a more safe environment. Asking people if they own or rent their house, who cares? Right. Right? But there's some other things that we need to ask them about just to measure not only the pre-existing beliefs, but also just their intellectual humility or flexibility because some people are just very, very cognitively rigid and there's nothing that can change their mind. And uh, there's ways to measure that. There's, there's questions you can ask. So bottom line is, I, I think to the extent possible, employing brief juror questionnaires. One page would go, a, or two pages would go a long way towards allowing these attorneys to better discover who's going to be a risky or dangerous juror for them in an efficient time manner. That makes a lot of sense. And of course, as with all things, you can have questionnaires that go on forever and ask a lot of questions like, do you rent your house, like you described. But you're right, a set of pointed questions that can be processed quickly by the attorneys and clients that are reviewing them could be invaluable. We head into this environment or looking for some of these things. Are there other tips, pointers that you would offer to judges as they bring their courtrooms and their veneer processes back online? The questionnaire one is a wise idea that's pretty easily implemented. We already have rules about that and people have some experience in dealing with those. Are there some other pointers you'd offer to people that will help them get up and running faster and more accurately as we start to return to the jury trial process? Yeah, um, I think I've found that people are a lot, and this is coming from the mock jury studies, you know, where I'm having 30 people, sure. you know, something like that. I've found that people are more comfortable around other people than I thought they would be. I'm really, really finding that. I also think it's important, and I always do this at the beginning of my mock jury studies, I really thank them for showing up, and I sort of recognize and let them know that I recognize that for some of these people, it takes some courage to go to a hotel conference center for a focus group or to go down to the courthouse for jury selection. More courage than it takes to do curbside pickup at Target. And I think by thanking them for that, it sort of relaxes everyone. And to the extent we can add a little levity to it, you know, I mean, I don't think we need a circus or anything like that, but just make everyone feel comfortable with a little bit more levity. And the last thing is just empowering them just making them feel like putting it at the top of their inbox, so to speak, that what they're doing by showing up to the courthouse is, is a very, very important part of our society, which, you know, for the last 12 to 14 months had essentially vanished in some areas of the country. I remember after uh, the 9-11 experience of many, many years ago, when courthouses were closed, public buildings were closed, they began to reopen, juries began to come back. And I remember the pride uh, both that lawyers, judges, jurors had in simply being back doing normal things with the U.S. flag or state flag there. And it, it sounds like some of that civic right. pride may be returning to us. Here. That's right. And it is this opportunity to participate in social justice. Now, I don't mean the criminal justice system. Right. I mean social justice. And if it's important to the judges, it's going to be important to the prospective jurors. If it's important to the lawyers and the litigants and the jurors, the prospective jurors can perceive that it's going to be important to them as well. They are taking cues from the legal professionals 
who are in their environment or in their courtroom. Tell us about conspiracy theorists. So here's what I'm seeing, and these are mock jury studies performed in Texas for Eastern District of Texas cases. I am seeing about 20% of my focus group participants believing that the government controls the weather. Wow. You ever heard that one before today? I had not heard that one. See, David, you show up for work and you never know what you're going to learn. That's a fascinating thing. The other one that I... Who do I complain to about the weather? Is uh, it the Bureau of Weather or... We don't know. I have to ask more information needed, I guess. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the other one that I'm now starting to hear, we used to hear some interesting things in these intellectual property cases like, well, how come the defendant can't just sue the United States Patent Office for wrongly issuing the plaintiff's patent or something like that? And you know what? To, To the average citizen, that probably makes sense to them. To the average lawyer, it sounds preposterous. But now I'm hearing that the PTO in granting patents is on the take. They're being bribed, right? And this is a little bit of the Trump effect, which could be a a podcast that could last a lot, lot longer than this. But that's still there. And again, that's part of this year 2020, which has shifted the way that juries make decisions. 2020 was a lot more than COVID. We had Mm -hmm. BLM. We had an election. We had all the run-up to the election. We had all the post-election back and forth. And a lot of people just came away different. In fact, I think every single one of us, you and I and everyone on this podcast, today, in the middle of April of 2021, is a different person than they were in April of 2020 because of everything that happened in the year 2020. And thus, our jurors are different too. What's interesting too that we've seen recently is in the Eastern District of Texas is quite a streak of extremely large verdicts. And so I get attorneys calling me and saying, what's going on with this, Jason? We got an ultra conservative venue filled with older white Caucasian folks who I have always thought would be textbook defense jurors. And we've just got this streak of very large verdicts with very little deliberation time. What's going on in my... You know, when I when I look back at the mock jury studies and tease out some of the data, it seems like these people uh, are now holding an unjust world type mentality that they didn't have before, and that is coming from the Trump effect. Sure, because he was really good at playing the victim, right? Victim of political witch hunts, victim of the media, just always being a victim, and I think. These people now can more closely associate with a victim, a plaintiff, than they could in the past. Well, that's in part of what jury service is supposed to do. It's like voting. The government engages with the people. This is a different branch of government, but the judiciary, the lawyers engage with people and get their reactions yeah. to how the law is being applied, what the substance of it is, and people bring to that the views that yeah. they have about the world, politics, right. and what have you. Like it or not, that's what they have, and that's what the law must engage with for it to be meaningful as a, as a way of controlling our society. Yeah, and you had asked before about, you know, what do we do about these biases? The, the good news is, you know, we're measuring these biases on an individual level, but like I said before, a jury verdict is a committee decision. Just like in a law firm, I could go poll all 500 lawyers at that firm, or I could just ask the comp committee of six people what they think, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to get some different sure. answers 
some different data. So what, what flushes out the biases is the group dynamics. They okay. get in there and those biases are, they get some pushback on them by other members of the group. And then we've got all sorts of group dynamics happening. So if you've got someone that's, for example, going to be biased against you, you think, but they're not going to say anything, or they're going to get steamrolled in the deliberations, the decision-making process, then maybe they're not so dangerous. So we've always looked for leaders. We've always looked to see who's a leader versus a follower. We've also just got to think about what that means in terms of how are they going to interact with people with biases, or are they the leaders going to be able to spread those biases. Unlike voting, that is, at the end of the day, just you in the voting booth, right. uh, jury service is the opposite. It's That's just you and either a half dozen or a dozen other people, depending on the size. Right. That's, That's very why, different. That's why, you know, when you're thinking about who's a good juror and who's a bad juror, not only do you need to think demographics, life experience, worldview, you got to think about personalities and you got to think about how is that individual going to act in a group setting because they render the vote in a group setting, not an individual setting. Very powerful reminder. Jason, this was extremely informative as we begin to wake up from the long sleep of 2020 and look at where we are. Like you say, we've become new people. There are new and powerful influences on our thinking, and they're all coming to the courthouse to be weighed and and examined as part of the jury deliberation process as lawyers begin to start trying their cases to juries again. Your insights are fascinating, and they're going to be very important to a lot of people in the remaining months of this year and 2022 as we get our jury trial process going again. I really appreciate you coming. Thank you, David. Upcoming episodes of Coal Mind will look at other legal issues arising from the experiences of 2020, as well as questions of law arising from the recent catastrophic power grid failures here in the state of Texas. I appreciate you listening, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon. If you'd like more information about Jason Bloom and his consulting work, you may look it up on his website, bloomstrategy.com, where he describes the different services that he offers, as well as his experience and his unique and very effective approach to jury selection. Mm -hmm.